All over the U.S., people are doing amazing things in the education world. The big difference between RTI and MTSS is that response to intervention is seen as kind of a, an academic model. Multi-tier systems of support that you mentioned is the same approach. It's just that we're now talking about doing it for both academic and behavioral, social, emotional, and really making that a blended system. They're creatively solving problems, making strategic decisions, finding new ways to meet the needs of students and teachers alike. And we're talking to them, experts in the field, thought leaders, superintendents, principals, special educators, and more. Every other Friday, we share those conversations here. So the gains are actually that we're, you know, if you think about a forest fire, you know, a small flame that you kind of spot, you address it, put it out, it's far better than saying, well, you know what, we'll wait three weeks and down the line, we'll try to take that fire on. It's going to be far beyond our ability to manage. That proactive stance for RTI really is that greatest benefit. From Frontline Education, you're listening to Field Trip. Today we're talking about Response to Intervention, or RTI, and Multi-Tiered Systems of Support, or MTSS. This model of supporting students who are struggling academically or behaviorally isn't new, but many school districts are considering how to implement such a model for the first time. Today my guest is Jim Wright, a highly acclaimed speaker, author, and trainer who works with districts and their RTI and MTSS programs. He's the author of The RTI Toolkit, A Practical Guide for Schools, and is the creator of the website interventioncentral.org. He's also spent 17 years working in public education as a school psychologist and administrator, and as we'll see, that work is highly relevant to the field of RTI. Jim, thanks for being here today. Oh, thank you. Nice to be here. Let's get some background first. While you now work as a trainer and consultant to schools, you still primarily think of yourself as a school psychologist. Tell us about your time in that role. Where did you work and and how long did you do that job? I worked in a small city in New York State called Syracuse and about 21,000 students in that system. And as a school psychologist, I worked there for about 14 years. I found that um, a lot of teachers were coming up to me and not asking to have kids tested, they were actually asking for ideas to help these kids be more successful in the classroom. So that really got me hooked and trying to find intervention ideas and strategies to share with teachers. And I've been doing that ever since. I asked Jim to tell me about his time as a school psychologist. What issues did he run into and how did they relate to RTI? You know, it was a mix, as it would be for any psychologist. And to some degree, I had some latitude to shape that role. I certainly had a lot of the more traditional kind of testing duties to decide whether a child might qualify for, you know, learning disability or, or other, you know, special need. Uh, but I had the opportunity also to consult with teachers around behavioral issues that kids might be having. Uh, I, I had great opportunities at the, at the school level to kind of work with them to decide how school-wide we're going to do an even better job of providing support to teachers to help them work with students. I certainly was trying to dig into the emerging research into what turned out to be RTI and share that with my school administrator and with uh, teachers. And near the, end of the, near the end of my position as a school psychologist in Syracuse, um, I was appointed the coordinating school psychologist, which means that I was sort of overseeing a staff of, you know, 25 plus psychologists. And at that, you know, more indirect level, I was trying to have impact in all the schools to have them thinking uh, with more of an intervention mindset. 
Jim, what, what would you say was most rewarding for you in your role? As a school psychologist, yeah. Um, you know, for me, it was when I was able to sit down with a teacher who says, you know, they've got a child who is really struggling with reading in the classroom or is struggling with attention. Um, and I'm able to offer some strategies that they're able to, to go back and use right away. Um, I remember there was one particular teacher, Wendy, a third grade teacher at that school, who, who had a student who was really struggling with, with behavior. And my sitting with her and really being able to map out some great ways to approach the student, to reinforce the student for appropriate behavior, to minimize attention when the student was uh, showing you know, less desirable behaviors. And she really saw that, that student turn around based on that, that quick conversation. So again, as I mentioned before, that's really how I got hooked on this notion of intervention, that good strategies, you know, well-shared and well-implemented really can, uh, can make the, a huge difference for, for kids who are struggling in classrooms. There's a lot of talk today about things like school culture and school climate. How does the work that you're doing now and the work that you did as a school psychologist impact culture, climate, and environment? I think the way I would get an answer to that question is, is you know, there's sort of an emerging movement. It's been around for a while, but people have heard about it. uh, PBIS, Positive Behavioral Interventions and Supports. And that's a whole sort of a a mindset that, that says quite, I think, appropriately, if we really want students, children to be able to show, you know, appropriate behaviors, um, and also if we really want to have a nurturing and supportive school climate, we should actually define our behavioral expectations up front, those positive behaviors we want to see in classrooms. And then we should treat behavior really as part of our school curriculum, really an extension of that. So if I want my, my students to be treating each other civilly, respectfully, I need to teach what those behavioral expectations are. I need to encourage students. I need to reinforce them when they show those behaviors. So the work that I've been doing as a school psychologist that really has uh, pushed into this whole issue of school culture, I I think is really just helping schools to realize that um, behaviors aren't something that are full-fledged and kids bring into into our classrooms. Behaviors, uh, those expectations are something that we will craft together teacher and students in that environment, we, we really need to teach those, those expected behaviors. Is that concept something that is relatively well known and, and, and well understood across the K-12 landscape? Or is that, is that still something that, that is sort of newer thinking? That's a great question. Um, so I certainly know that this whole push for that positive behavioral focus has been out there nationally in the research journals and grants and in, in state ed initiatives um, for something close to two decades now. But I've also worked in a number of schools where they still have kind of an earlier mindset that would say, well, if we want to teach kids behavioral expectations, we need to have clear negative consequences to kind of teach them. And so there's more of a reactive, almost a punitive approach, which was traditional in schools. And so I think we're seeing, Ryan, that there's a um, a paradigm shift going on here. I think we've made some great headway, but there's still a lot of work to be done in schools across the nation, at least in my experience. Hmm. As we're talking about interventions and, and, and RTI, also known as multi-tiered systems of support, these, of course, are known by different names in different states. And, and because they're not always required by the government, they're not required by the federal government, Programs like this aren't universal. Let's take a step back and just ask, when we talk about RTI and MTSS, what's that all about? What's the elevator pitch there? The elevator pitch is this. Um, we, want, we have limited resources in schools, and so we want to make sure that we identify 
those children who really need extra support and we provide that support but we do it in a way that's um, economical that's feasible and that is really going to help those students and so this whole rti response to intervention approach says maybe we can take our school-wide resources and organize them according to levels levels of intensity we we actually use the term tiers levels and the most common model says that you're going to have three levels of support tier one would be that classroom teacher the support that she's able he's able to provide in that classroom for behavioral or academic um, success uh, moving beyond that you get more into that tier two that child whose delays academically or, or behaviorally require kind of supplemental support to fill in some of those gaps uh, and then often they're fine and they're able to go back to that classroom and be successful and then tier three at the top of our levels of what we call our pyramid of interventions we'd be talking about the most intensive need students, maybe maybe one to five percent of a school population who really need more intensive problem solving and customized intervention plans to meet their unique needs. Um, the big difference between RTI and MTSS is that response to intervention is seen as kind of a, an academic model. Multi-tier systems of support that you mentioned is the same approach. It's just that we're now talking about trying to build three levels of support that sort of incrementally move up, but doing it for both academic and behavioral, social, emotional, and really making that a blended system. I know that when we're talking about interventions like this, it is not the same thing as special education, but it does sound like there are some parallels or, or some tie there. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship between the two? Sure. First of all, I'm really glad that you mentioned that it, you know, RTI, MTSS is not special ed, but for the most part, it's general ed, and that's the whole point. Maybe I can talk about the relationship between RTI and special ed by talking about how RTI got started. There was a real concern out there before RTI that we were actually giving kids uh, intensive help when they struggled. But first of all, we, we'd have to wait till they fail and they'd fail for several years. And then they might get an IEP. They, they would get special ed support. The problem with that, of course, is that it was entirely very wasteful. And as kids, you know, struggled for several years and then got an IEP that that gap in say math skills or reading skills was so large it was very difficult to close that gap. So that pre-RTI approach was derisively kind of called the wait to fail model. And so then the RTI movement got started because people were saying, wait a minute, why do we have to wait three or four years for a student to qualify with a learning disability uh, when in fact it might just be an instructional mismatch. When on day one, once we identify a small gap in general, maybe we can just give that student an intervention plan to provide targeted academic supports, catch them up, and then we never have to worry about an IEP. So the RTI movement actually got its start based on some dissatisfaction with, with our previous special ed model. But the RTI model itself, the MTSS model, use the term you choose, does have a lot of elements that really came out of special ed research. For example, we, in RTI, we have a student who's struggling. We really want to define that student's presenting concerns as clearly and specifically as we can. Well, well, that really comes from special ed that says, if you can't name it, you certainly can't fix the problem. And then RTI also pushes this notion, uh, which I strongly support, that if we're going to be using strategies or programs to help a student to, to reach success in a classroom, those strategies or programs really do need to have research to support them. And again, that comes out of special ed. We want to use you know, good, well-researched well you know, strategies and programs to help kids be successful. And then there's a final element of RTI that also kind of got its impetus from special ed. And that is the notion that if a student is getting something that we're calling an intervention, let's say across several weeks, targeted for just that student's needs, we're collecting some, we've set clear goals for improvement, and we've, we're collecting some kind of data 
that's going to tell us clearly whether that student is benefiting from that intervention. So it's really database. So that whole collection clearly defined the problem, matched that student to research-based interventions, set a very clear outcome goal, so you'll be able to define if you're successful at the end, and then collect data formatively to judge whether you're you know, making the progress you'd expect. All of those elements really stemmed from seminal kind of uh, special ed research, and then really pushed into the RTI general ed uh, model. When you see school systems successfully implement models like this, does it typically result in anything like financial savings as they're able to address student behaviors prior to a special needs diagnosis coming into play and, and needing to refer them to special education? Um, sure, you know, let me think that one through. What I would say in response to that is, in my experience at least, is that we don't necessarily see a large cost savings. Um, what we do see, however, is that we realign how we're spending our money and we get better outcomes. So in that pre-RTI special ed paradigm, we certainly had a number of special education staff, highly skilled, working with a fairly large number of special needs students, many of those students getting into you know, the special ed system because they, they failed in general ed and, and we hadn't addressed those concerns. With RTI though, the goal and often the actual outcome is that we see a reduction in number of students referred to special education. But of course, up front, before that special education referral, we're now investing more heavily in general education. Uh, we're actually giving these students targeted RTI support. So we may be shifting the investment from supporting special educators to supporting proactive RTI interventionists. However, the encouraging piece, even if this were a zero-sum game in terms of investment, is that we are seeing better outcomes. Obviously, the student who's successful in general ed never needs an IEP. Um, the gains there, even if they're not financial, are profound because now we have a successful student who goes on, is confident, is has the skill set that they need to be, you know, kind of full-fledged working adults, and they graduate uh, successfully as well. So not necessarily seeing that there is a cost savings, but we are seeing that there are uh, other maybe less tangible but profound benefits. I was going to ask, what are the most common kinds of things you see in school systems that an RTI or MTSS behavioral model can help? Uh, but I want to expand on your previous answer and just ask, what are the most common benefits that are seen when, when this kind of model is implemented? What, what sorts of results do you wind up seeing? Um, actually, what we end up seeing is exactly what you'd expect. Let's just take the academic side of MTSS, multi-tier system support. We have you know, a student who has an emerging you know, reading issue. Maybe she's just not a fluent reader. And so in the, the, the pre-RGI model I mentioned, that student may struggle with inadequate support in reading, you know, building that fluency until at some point her fluency gap is so large that it becomes a functional disability and she's given an IEP. So from the RTI model, instead, we would, you know, school-wide, we might screen students three times a year using some kind of a measure that's sensitive to, to picking up on reading fluency. We'd identify this, this child as having an emerging reading issue in fluency, and she would go right into a targeted group to work on fluency. So the student who, who might have had a cascading fluency issue that eventually several years from now becomes disabling, we would actually pick that student up with an emerging concern, address the concern, close the gap, and have her back in the classroom and be successful. So the gains are actually that we're, you know, if you think about a forest fire, you know, a small flame that you kind of spot, you address it, put it out, it's far better than saying, well, you know what, we'll wait three weeks and down the line, we'll try to take that fire on. It's going to be far beyond our ability to manage. That proactive stance for RTI really is that greatest benefit. When small problems, smaller problems begin to emerge and they're still manageable, 
we, we immediately kind of target that support to those students based on some kind of, you know, um, referral data. And then they get, um, we solve that issue and they're back in the classroom and we don't even have to think about that possible trip to special ed. Mm. What is the relationship between school psychology and multi-tiered systems of supports? Is MTSS basically a school psychology program on a broader scale? You know, uh, I would not say that. There's a lot of really skilled and highly qualified people beyond school psychologists who both created this MTSS model and have been really pushing it uh, out there. But I will say that school psychology as a discipline has taken a strong lead role in both defining, um, researching, and promoting MTSS in schools across the nation. Um, In fact, uh, many school psychology programs have become very progressive in emphasizing intensively this role of the psychologist in their training programs, the role of the psychologist in really uh, promoting MTSS. Everything from the psychologist being able to identify for the school, you know, strong programs and practices that would work under MTSS, uh, training the psychologist to be really sensitive in her skills or his skills, being able to work with teachers to help change their practice for the better using MTSS kind of, you know, methods. Um, help that psychologist is, is getting training in, in their school psych programs, uh, often in how to uh, work at the administrative level to start changing, you know, le- you know, school leaders' minds and, and shifting people more toward an MTSS model. But, you know, speech pathology, special education, counseling, there's been a, a lot of other disciplines that have also had a hand in pushing MTSS forward in schools. You've likened this work to, to juggling. Do, do you juggle? I do juggle. I juggle badly and I'm proud of it. Thanks for it. <laughs> Can you talk about the, the connection there, you know, the parallel between juggling and all these things as a school psychologist and the efforts there in an MTSS program? Sure. I'll open this up to actually any educator who gets involved with RTI. Because when you think about response to intervention, you think about multi-tier systems of support. If, if someone feels pretty well versed in that as, as an approach, it's everything I already mentioned. Can you define a problem clearly? Can you uh, identify whether there's research-based practices are going to help with that? Can you, you know, find data sources that are going to tell you if the intervention's working? Can you convince, you know, your fellow educator or teacher to really be on board and implement some of these these intervention strategies? And so we're we're literally juggling any educator who's who's supporting RTI. We're juggling kind of new skills and expectations that many of us traditionally weren't trained in. And where RTI really works in schools and works well is where it doesn't, you know, depend on. I mean, I love school psychologists and school psychology. But schools that are successful with RTI are schools that have helped, you know, manage to get beyond that. And they've really uh, trained and empowered a range of educators. It could be the speech pathologist. It could be a special ed teacher. It could be, you know, a really interested um, special ed, excuse me, general ed teacher. And with this cadre of people from different disciplines, but trained in kind of the same skill set and mindset to support RTI, that's how we, we make that work. So we're essentially creating, if you will, you know, a school-wide collection of, of I think, uh, jugglers. And increasingly, people are getting comfortable with that. Obviously, such programs are designed to help students. You've spoken about that already. What does an ideal system in a district look like? Or, or maybe a better way to ask it is, what are the ideal student outcomes that we would hope to see? You know, really in a nutshell, I mean, the good thing about RTI, MTSS, is that while there are some general kind of non-negotiables. If you want to make this model work, here's what you need. There's also a lot of latitude for schools to make it their own. Great example of that. Um, you know, I mentioned before there are three levels of support, tiers one, two, three. On the academic side, an important tier is tier two, 
because if I have a student whose, let's say, academic needs are beyond the ability of that classroom teacher alone to kind of catch the student up in because there are gaps, you know, we have a supplemental provider who may typically pull that student into a small remedial kind of a group, target the uh, missing skills that they need to work on and help them to catch up. But the way that we actually enter kids into and exit them from the, those tier two services is typically by using this researched school-wide screener, which is a fast way to get a sense of students' kind of academic abilities, because that allows us to compare that student in percentile rankings to other kids across the nation and get a sense of the risk. The kid who's a student who performs fourth grade and reading fluency at the 50th percentile, it's going to be fine in a classroom, no support needed. Another student who scored at the fifth percentile, guess what? That's high risk. We probably should get them right into intervention. So, you know, when I think about what makes RTI work in schools, it's really about making sure that they've got those essential non-negotiables, that they've thought about this continuum of supports from tier one, tier two, tier three. They define them. They feel that those are solid research-based approaches, that they address all the needs in the school. And one way that a school judges whether it's got a good model put in place are exactly what you mentioned, the outcomes. We're also regularly looking at our student performance. So when we're screening kids, for example, three times a year using some kind of school-wide screener to judge whether, you know, uh, which kids might need tier two support. Over time, as we strengthen our core instruction, we want to see the numbers of kids who need that supplemental support drop. Initially, a school might find, you know, 30 or 40% of students really need that supplemental support. Well, that's too many. But as they work on then, you know, trying to help teachers to strengthen core instruction and the next screening, school screening, we really do want to see that number of kids who might need help beyond the classroom drop because core instruction is now more effective. So <clears throat> I guess what I'd say about RTI is it's about setting up the model. It's about tinkering with the model. It's about looking, about, uh, looking at data that reflect on the effectiveness of the model and then being willing to make changes so that you're going to keep moving in that direction that kind of shows that more kids are successful. Do such programs also benefit educators as well as students? I'd say absolutely. Um, and that's because, I mean, why are teachers in the business of teaching? They have a passion for teaching. They really want to help, you know, learners to be successful. And the whole notion of RTI and push of RTI is to do exactly that. Let's identify those students who are beginning to have emerging issues. And let's give teachers and, you know, support staff a toolkit so that the moment we see a student with some concerning kind of delays, we're able to match that student to intervention. And so teachers got kind of get trained in this, you know, RTI framework that I've already mentioned. Instead of, you know, globally being concerned about a student, they're able to target and clearly describe the area they need to work on, clear definition. Um, schools that are kind of proactive put together for teachers kind of a handy toolkit of intervention strategies that are commonly needed at that grade level so teachers can just easily find and implement intervention ideas. Each teacher's not left on their own to find those strategies. Teachers begin to learn some classroom-friendly ways to collect data. Everybody wants to know if their intervention strategies are working. Nobody wants to just wing it. And so as teachers start to absorb that, that framework to find the problem, let's use research-based ideas, let's take data, see if the intervention's working. When that becomes second nature, that educator definitely is stronger in her or his instructional skills. There's no question. In your travels, are you finding that districts are seeing results from using an RTI or MTSS method? And, and Yes, they are. Uh, I just want to jump in and say absolutely. But I want to say this, too. Um, several things have to be in place. And I'll just say this because, you know, I work with a lot of school districts and sometimes I parachute into a district. It's my first visit. 
And so I, I found some pretty fast ways to get a sense of whether diagnostically the, the school looks like it's going to be you know, successful with RTI. And first, the first kind of litmus test I, I, I have is I, ask, I get a sense from schools about whether they believe that RTI really is a general-led initiative. And if they do, then that's a good sign. But if schools are thinking, well, no, this is just another way to eventually get a kid into a special ed, that's a concern because they don't see the full potential of RTI. I also try to get a quick bead on whether school administrators, once they kind of understand that RTI model, and district administrators, do they really support it? I mean, actively, I mean, in that real proactive way. If, if there's administrative support that's and understanding, that's huge. If that's lacking, well, that's a real uh, warning sign that RTI might not be successful in that district. And lastly, um, as I'm you know, canvassing districts to get a sense of their capacity and whether they're ready for RTI, is I try to get a sense of whether the uh, school has defined some kind of a meaningful RTI role for every staff member. Um, because we can all help out with RTI. That classroom teacher with a, a student with a minor but emerging you know, behavioral or academic concern, if that teacher knows exactly what they can and should do to provide that spot on support to help that student, that's a good predictor that we're actually going to have a successful system. But ultimately, when you've got schools that where you know six people in the school all trying to run intervention groups are trying to do all of RTI, and the rest of staff really don't have a defined role, that's a school that's not likely to, to be successful. So schools that, that kind of know that RTI is a general ed initiative, the administrators are on board, and every staff member has some defined role to support RTI. When I see those elements in place, I have a lot of confidence that they're going to see success. Hmm. You mentioned already looking at data. What data are they looking at and, and how are districts collecting it? Well, you know, the data um, play different roles at different points. If it's classroom teacher and, and she or he is just trying to get a sense in their classroom about who might be struggling with core instruction, they're going to look at their instructional information. You know, sometimes it's quizzes, sometimes it's homework, sometimes it's in-class work samples, and they'll respond accordingly. When we want to get a sense, though, of who might need more intensive support beyond the classroom, which I've already defined you know, with you as like tiers two and three of RTI, that's where we're, we're, we're ideally using some school-wide screeners. School-wide screeners come in a variety of uh, kind of packages uh, and, and styles, but um, there is a great webpage maintained by the National Center on Intensive Intervention. And it's an academic intervention tools chart that will lay out for you know, your listeners all the you know, a range of research-based um, school-wide screeners for academics that, that schools can really check out, actually some for behavior as well. But th th so, so there what we're doing is we're, we're screening our school population three times per year. We're applying our benchmark norms to get a sense of which students are performing uh, below a cut point of maybe 20th or 25th percentile uh, on that school-wide screener to get a sense of who's at risk. And those students would be candidates to move into tier two and three uh, levels of support. So that's where we're using data to enter and exit students from more intensive services. And then our final use of data are within those interventions at tiers two and three. You know, those might often last six to eight weeks. Maybe it's a reading group, maybe it's a math, you know, skills group. And even in those supplemental kind of intervention groups, the expectation is that interventionist is taking some kind of data, ideally weekly, um, so that they can get a sense of which students are really benefiting from that group, and maybe it can be exited over time, and which students really need different or more intensive support. So we're even taking data day-to-day -day or week-to-week, I should say, in those tier two, three groups. So 
Data plays a pervasive role, but it plays a somewhat different role depending on the intensity of the intervention and the purpose of the data collection. Thinking of districts who are might be thinking about starting a program like this, at this point in time, do you see many schools or many districts that are starting RTI and MTSS programs for the first time? Um, I do. You know, here's the thing. We talk about RTI and it sounds like it's its own thing. And, and we talk, we call it a program or a model. But when I think about it, what it really is, is it's a systematic a, a attempt to help kids who are struggling. And virtually every school district and school I've ever visited has real concerns about those students in their school, those, you know, subpopulations of kids who are really, really struggling. So when someone asks the question, gosh, should our school start RTI? I ask the question, do you have any kids who are struggling that you're worried about? And the answer is, yeah, we do. We have a lot of them. I say, then you need RTI because RTI is the approach that allows you to systematically, right, identify which pockets of kids have needs, what those needs are, um, how you might use your school resources most economically and effectively to address those needs, and how you might be able to measure whether you're effective. And what I discover as I work with schools that say they're not doing RTI is that sometimes in a stumbling fashion, they're actually doing something that you could call RTI. Classroom teachers are trying without much direction to support kids in classrooms. There's often, you know, Title I teachers are trying to work with small groups of kids for supplemental support, but there may not be a lot of coordination there. There's often something floating around their school, a team that they call the instructional support team or a similar name that meets on particular kids that nobody else knows what to do with. As far as I'm concerned, I've just named for you tiers one, two, and three, but they don't call it that. But for many schools, you know, they have the wrong question in mind. Should we take on this new initiative? When in fact, it should be reframed as, should we use the RTI model to reorganize our existing resources to do a better job? Anytime you set up a system like this, that's a difficult thing to do. It's much harder, it seems, than you know, making one-off efforts. Setting up a system, district or school-wide, is challenging. What are the big roadblocks that are, are most commonly faced to getting something like this up and running or to this reorganization that you're mentioning? You know, that very much depends on the school. I'll say probably the biggest roadblock might be what I've already alluded to. Um, when this is rolled out in an initiative like RTI, like MTSS, if it's presented as here's something new we need to do, everybody shuts down because everybody has too much on their plate already in schools. If instead we're saying, well, we want to take our best current practices to support kids and we want to find a way to refine and improve that. And we also, by the way, if possible, teacher would like to make your life both better and easier and, and have you feel more effective. That's a school that's gone a long way toward getting people to buy into that system-wide change. It's got to be incremental. We also don't want to make the mistake in schools of trying to rush this because schools can only move forward with RTI at a rate that is sustainable given the resources. And schools can only move forward with RTI at a rate that where staff is able to assimilate those expect those changes in expectation. So, but you, <clears throat> your question was a good one because sometimes people start RTI and they think it's it's like this one thing, and that it's pretty easy to do. When you're done, you'll be done. And I think your question kind of points out the fact that RTI really is a school and district wide kind of comprehensive reform and change. So you really do need to plan it. You need to get all your stakeholders on board and you need to roll it out at a sustainable rate. I think you you started to answer my next question just now, and that is making a big change like this can be like trying to turn around a 747. What steps can schools or districts take not just to get buy-in from staff, but in order to really ensure a successful launch or a successful effort? 
You know, this is going to sound kind of mundane, but I think the first thing to do is to make sure that kind of the, the, the key decision makers, and that's not just administrators, that's often, you know, highly influential support staff and teachers, you know, in schools and at the district level, need to come together as sort of a task force or group. And they really need to first fully understand what the model's asking. And then they should also formulate, even if it, you can obviously revise it, but they need to formulate um, a plan for how they might unfold and roll out RTI in their school. And I think that plan should span at least three years. And I bring that up because there's some elements of RTI that the school might say, you know what, we can get on that right away. For example, building staff understanding and awareness of RTI is typically a year one task that schools take on. We obviously want to educate our teachers and support staff about why we're going to do RTI. But some elements of RTI, for example, tier two supports, supplemental, pulling kids out of classrooms, putting them in small intervention groups. In some schools, to make that, to revamp that system, they have to change schedules, they've got to change job descriptions, they've got to do all kinds of things that they can't do right away. So some of these changes in RTI, honestly, they're not going to get to till year two or three. So when you've got a district or school that has this task force, this implementation group for RTI, for MTSS, who first really understand the model and second, have begun to block out what they need to do in increments that span several years, that helps them because A, it tells them where to throw their energy and priorities now, and B, this is just as important, it really tells them what, what they can what they can wait on, what they don't need to do right away so, so that people don't feel overwhelmed. And so we don't find ourselves flailing because we're trying to do too much uh, too quickly. One final question here, and that is, as you, in your travels, as you have uh, seen lots of districts who are doing this, and you think about veteran RTI or MTSS districts, those who are already using this kind of model. If you have one piece of advice for people in in those kinds of districts, what might you say? I think what I would do there is just remind them that it's helpful to periodically come back together. And I say, I call it recalibration because, you know, we'll set up a wonderful system that's working pretty well. We'll tweak it over time. It's hard earned, but you know what? It's, It's working. And there is the temptation to kind of say, all right, we're done with that. But we tend to drift away a little bit sometimes from these great procedures we've set up. Also, schools like every other organization, we have turnover in staff. So you've got this charismatic kind of person who's running a lot of RTI in a school. He or he retires or, or, or takes another position. And you can lose some of that impetus. So I think for schools that are really veteran RTI, MTSS schools, it really can be helpful periodically to kind of pull together that group that I defined before as your task group, your implementation group uh, for RTI, and just say, okay, let's just review what our current system is. Let's refresh our understanding of current best practices for RTI. Let's look for any possible gaps, shortfalls, concerns, and then let's try to recalibrate. Let's try to get ourselves back into alignment. It's almost like you're doing sort of a an update shakeout cruise to make sure that Our current practices aren't drifting away from the best possible practices. The real push in RTI initially was for academics, and that's great because that's where we had the most pressing concern, at least as it was perceived. But that whole notion of MTSS, just the adoption of that term implies we want to have that strong support for students on the behavioral, social, emotional side as, as well as academics. So for schools that feel like they're doing a pretty good job with academics for RTI, you know, I would urge them to, to not, you know, let up yet. They need to think also about then crafting a behavioral set of supports that mirror the academic supports, tiers one, two, three, you know, classroom teacher ideas to support struggling kids with behavioral issues, 
tier two, what do we have to help students who begin to have needs, social, emotional, behavioral needs that are beyond the classroom teacher's ability alone to address, et cetera, and really just build that more integrated system. I guess what I'm trying to say here is I just remind schools to not overlook the academic, excuse me, the behavioral and the social, emotional side, because so often that is a, a factor in why kids struggle. And when we have some real resources there, the teachers feel good about um, the whole school climate improves. So don't forget the behavior, I guess. Would you would you say that the academic side of things is is more common to see? It is uh, often because you know when you think about that, that was the first real push in RTI for schools across the nation. And so for many schools, that's kind of a legacy model they have in place. They know they're familiar with, but they don't always then think that they could, which is true, they could translate those benefits also into behavior if they could you know, design that behavioral continuum to match the academic continuum for RTI. Okay. Thank you, Jim. And to all of our listeners right now, we're offering a free ebook written by Jim Wright called Performing an RTI-MTSS Academic Screening Process Checkup, How to Ensure Your Process Lends Power to Your RTI-MTSS Efforts and Team. And it's packed with great information about how to evaluate the quality of your screening data and cut points, how to tighten up your school's RTI-MTSS screening process and workflow, how to decide which type of screener is the best fit for your school, and strategies and pitfalls to keep in mind as you go through the process. If you'd like to download it from Frontline Education, we have posted the link here in the podcast show notes. Jim Wright is the author of the RTI Toolkit, a practical guide for schools, and the founder of the website interventioncentral.org. Jim, thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thanks for inviting me. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or pretty much anywhere else you find your podcasts. Field Trip is a production from Frontline Education, bringing you the Frontline Insights platform, a holistic software solution for K-12 designed to help you better recruit, hire, engage, retain, and grow your employees, and provide unparalleled insights into what's happening in your district. For Frontline Education, I'm Ryan Estes. Thanks for listening, and have a great day.